Hello there, online family. So good to see you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Agora Bible Fellowship, and we just wanted to say welcome. Welcome to another online service. So our heart here at the church is that everyone is connected to a local body of believers. And so our hope is that these online messages are just supplemental, that they're either a great additional teaching in your week here on a midweek, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, just trying to dive into more of God's word, or you're gone traveling, you just don't want to miss a service. Either way, that is fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us here. A couple of things wanted to point your attention to. The first is we would love for you to text any prayer request that you have to 97,000. 97 and three zeros. Please text us those requests and we will pray for you this week. Stephanie will respond to you pretty much immediately uh, throughout the week. Uh, go ahead and test it. That would be great. We'd love to pray for you. A uh, couple other things. If you're interested in what is going on here at this local body of believers here in Agora, uh, Hills, California. We'd love for you to check out the website. You can see all the different ministries that we have, all the different events that are going on here in the next few weeks, ways to get plugged into groups, ways to serve. All that is on the website. As well, on the website is an opportunity to give. If you're interested in continuing to support the ministries here, uh, your donations, people donations, is the only way that we continue to have any sort of impact here and around the world. 10% of all money that comes in, then we distribute out to both local and global missions. Thank you so much for continuing to support the ministries here. We appreciate it a ton. So now, I don't want to keep you waiting. It is time to get into God's Word. That's why you're here, so let's do it. Well, hello, church family. Thanks for joining us online. Thank you, Josh, uh, for the church updates. want to welcome you into uh, just a, a fun Valentine's weekend. Uh, hopefully uh, you have something planned for that this weekend. I know for Adrian and I, that's always a real special time. We were actually uh, married on Valentine's Day. So uh, the 14th is going to be our 24th anniversary. So we're excited about that. And um, yeah, it really is kind of a, a cool thing because uh, man, over the years, I've gotten to be a part of so many different uh, weddings. And uh, for a long time, uh, about, about 14 years, was a young adults uh, pastor, and I got to uh, be a part of so many different people's journey, coming into relationship, and then even seeing them make a, uh, get engaged, and then make a commitment to marry, and then being a part of that big day. It's interesting how in most of those are really a common theme was for them to use this passage of 1 Corinthians 13. It's actually known as the love chapter, so it's kind of a cool thing that God ordained that that's where we'd be uh, at spending time this weekend. But what I found interesting is so often it's read in weddings, but it's seldom preached. The reason it's seldom preached is because truth be told, and I, I don't want to mess up anybody's uh, wedding experience, but it really has nothing to do with romantic love and everything to do with how believers treat each other within the church. And also it expands into how we treat those outside of the church, but not necessarily intended uh, for uh, marriage. But honestly, you can still apply 
uh, any of the principles found in this passage, talking about love as it explains it, as it defines it, helps us make sense out of it. So don't worry, our, our wedding commitments, our wedding, wedding ceremony weren't uh, a big sham. They actually are represented in this passage. Well, I'm excited because if you remember last week, he was pointing to, Paul was pointing to, hey, instead of getting all uh, mixed up with uh, get spiritual gift envy, uh, spiritual gift uh, just insecurity. He's like, you know, there's a much better way. The better way is to be compelled by love, not distracted by all of these different things. And so we're going to get a, a neat look uh, here today just at this, this beautiful passage on love uh, stemming out of that conversation on spiritual gifts, which is kind of a cool thing. Let me just pray before we explore it. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for this chance to gather and a chance to be in your word and to see uh, how our version of love maybe uh, matches or doesn't match with your design and your plan. I just pray that you would uh, nudge us, encourage us, uh, do the things that we uh, need so much through your Holy Spirit, just that as we spend time in the word right now, we invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to just start right at the beginning of chapter 13 with a little bit of an explanation of the importance of love, how it really is the only healthy foundation. This is what it says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is the, the point that he's trying to make is he's trying to explain the importance of love regardless of whatever your gifts are, regardless of your level of, of faith. Well, we'll just walk through it. The first thing he says, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, speaking in tongues is something that was first seen all the way back in Acts chapter two, where different groups were gathering together all uh, speaking different dialects in that time period. And the interesting thing was God allowed through the, the, the disciples for each of the people that were gathered in the early church or the foundation of the church, for them to hear clearly uh, uh, explanation that they were, a, without explanation, they were able to hear speaking their own language. It's kind of a, a unique way, a unique gifting that God allowed for the disciples, I mean, uh, the apostles to be able to communicate uh, to them. It's kind of a, a significant thing. It's we're going to talk a, quite a bit more about it uh, next week in chapter 14. There's a big chunk set apart for that. But basically, if you think about it, if you're talking in someone's native tongue and you've never spoken that language before, it would most likely get someone's attention. So that's the idea of speaking in tongues that's mentioned here. But then he refers to just, if I speak in tongues of man and of angels, what are the tongue of angels? Basically, the only thing that can be noted with the tongues of angels is anytime they speak, 
It's crystal clear. You see, an angel is designed to be God's messenger, and he brings words from him to communicate it to mankind. And anytime there's an encounter with an angel, no one's left to wonder what that message is. What Paul's explaining, he said, man, if you think about this for a second, if I was as good at communicating as men who can speak unknown dialects and angels who are God's messengers, but don't have love, What does he describe there? He says, it's like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So the most articulate person with unbelievable abilities, even supernatural abilities to communicate, he's saying, if you don't do that compelled by love, it's like a a gong or a cymbal. What, have you th- what do you think of with that? Usually anytime that you think of gongs or cymbals, that's usually attached to a marching band. But one thing you'll notice in marching band world is you never have anybody doing any kind of a, of a solo with one of these. That's, that's not it. It might be the backdrop, but it might, if it's somebody just playing, playing, playing a gong, the gong's the one that hangs up and you keep hitting, that would become super irritating. And that's the point that he's making. He said, it is completely pointless, even the best order, if they're not compelled by love. And if you think about that, that's a dangerous place to be. I like a a quote I heard from a pastor, Jason Fritz, this week. He said, gifted communicators, divorce of love, become excellent manipulators. Wow kind of a a crazy description and a great reminder that anyone that's operating in their spiritual gifts is not free from the potential to sin. They still have the uh, ability to take, take you down some really dark roads if they're not tethered by this foundation that he's pointing to of love. So that's his first illustration. He says, Then he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all the faith. So so basically he's pointing to different things, saying, listen, if I have the ability to prophetically see the future, and if I have complete understanding and wisdom and can communicate that, if I have those things, but if I don't have love, there's really no point to that. It's the, the idea here, he's trying to come up with examples of the most extreme measure. So he says, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, can you imagine having that level of faith that has built up in your life and that you're just able to say, mountain move and it moves. Again, he's trying to use big examples. He's like, so he's saying, doesn't matter what your gifting is, doesn't matter what your faith is. And the next example he uses, it doesn't matter what your sacrifice is. It says, if I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's the idea here. Think about that example. He said, imagine somebody that has a, a big collection of all of their items and they have them all laid out and they're just like, you know what? I'm giving it all away. I'm not going to keep anything for myself. You would in spiritual terms, you think, wow, that's legit spiritual maturity. Or the person that says, you know what, I'm willing to, to die, to be bur- put, to, put to death or burned at a stake. Man, that's spiritual maturity. Paul's trying to bring them back without a foundation of love. It's kind of all pointless, similar to us today. 
You see, the reality is, is that they can be somebody that's serving, that's using their gifts, but they're not compelled and rooted in love and are really just missing it. They're compelled by unhealthy motivators like duty rather than delight, like guilt rather than gratitude, like self-promotion rather than service. That's what he's saying. He said, it's all empty. It's all pointless. So he's starting the conversation. So it says it doesn't matter, this, this, qua, this squabbling over spiritual gifts and the jealousy that's happening. What's the point of all that if it's not compelled by love? The greater thing that he wants to point them to is love compelling and driving everything. So then the question, the obvious question that would lead to, well, what does this love actually look like? And that's where the meat of this passage is known for Verse 4 explains what does love actually look like. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. There we go. There's a, a powerful picture of love, and we're in a culture, unfortunately, where the love thing isn't necessarily clearly communicated. In fact, there's uh, that word is thrown around. I know we've talked about it before in other services. It's thrown around so loosely. I mean, I'm guilty as well. I, I love a Chipotle burrito. I love the rims on that car. I throw it around as if it's no big deal, but the description here isn't a hallmark summer fling kind of a th uh, experience, what he's describing is genuine love, and genuine love is always you before me. It's always you before me. Look at some of the descriptions that it gives here. It doesn't start, he doesn't waste much time before it gets convicting. The first descriptor, or first convicting aspect of love is patience. Patience is, means long-tempered. I like the definition here I was reading this week. It says the, the, uh, that um, patience is persistent compassion in the face of opposition. In other words, consistently being compassionate even when you're opposing difficult things. And here's the thing is that it's not talking about the hardship of driving in traffic. Oh yeah, I'm patient in traffic or a long line at, at the grocery store. That's not what it's talking about in this context, although those things do take patience. What he's describing is patience with difficult people. We all have them in our life. People that cross our paths that you're just like, oh man, they, they seem like they're always taking, always in line. They're, they're never giving. They're a draw. They, they really, we might say, suck the life out of you. But you're like, you know what? That's what true love is, is this idea of looking to, to sacrifice without the expectation of anything in return. That's where it leads to the word kindness. It's patient and kind. Seeking out the needs and finding how to meet them. You see, kindness is, is patience in action. You're looking for ways. Not just tolerating somebody. That's the patience part. But then putting it in practice and you're like, man, I'm looking for tangible ways to meet this person's needs. 
describes that, this idea of kindness. And really, if you think about it, probably one of the best testing grounds for patience and kindness is even in your own home, within your own family. Sometimes that's the most challenging arena to put these things into practice, demonstrating servanthood. It's kind of funny, my uh, family's just coming out of the season of life where my kids are getting a little bit older. I now have two with driver's license, and we're kind of getting out of that period of time where you just have to drive them everywhere. I'll tell you what, if there's anything that tests your patience and your kindness, it's that when you're like, oh, you're settled in for the night and you're like, oh, I've got to go pick up, you name whichever one of the kids from this or that. And you're like, oh, I just don't feel like doing it. That's where love comes into play. Just the other night, I had to pick up Sienna from something uh, later in the evening, and Chase is able to drive as well. I'm like, all right, Chase, rock, paper, scissors. Who's going to go? And guess who lost and ended up doing the drive? This guy. But here's the idea. That's a picture of love. He continues in that description. Says it's not, he says it's not, uh, it's, it doesn't envy or doesn't boast. I think that's kind of an interesting description because we're in a, a world that's envious and boastful, the arrogant and the rude, you might say. The, the person that's, uh, that, that's putting them above everyone else. I was reading this week this idea that, it, that it has, uh, love has good manners. You're putting others, like I said, above yourself. I like this explanation for uh, the arrogant and rude. Arrogant is, I am more important than you. And rude is, my time is more important than yours. Describes that, he describes this picture uh, of being uh, insisting on your own way. That's again getting to the root of selfishness, not being able to budge. The person that's just like, no, I like to do things my way. There's no adjustment. There's no compromise. That's not what love's intended to look like. It's intended to be something where you're thinking and putting the needs of someone above your own. We're in such a fight for our own rights and our own uh, expectations. And that's not at all what I see as is described by love. Again, love is you before me. Here's the thing that's mentioned also is uh, irritability. This, this idea of being uh, just always on, on, on edge. This irritable or resentful. This irritable is the person that's just like, man, it does not take much to set them off. I don't know if you've noticed that lately, but it just seems like our world is kind of operating at this edge of irritability where they're just ready to burst for any silly thing. Just really whether, and that's maybe one that does play into traffic or those arenas where you're just like, man, you're just, just right on edge and there's so much stuff that's built up. Remember some years back, uh, uh, riding in a car with a, a gentleman, and he had a, a, a moonroof in his car, and I noticed in the center between the two front seats that he had a, a collection of golf balls. I was like, oh man, I didn't know that you're a golfer. He's like, no, I don't golf. I just keep those to toss out the moonroof when someone's irritated me after I drive in front of them. I'm like, whoa, like what in the, what in the world uh, it was that about? But here's the idea as he's describing things. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Again, not celebrating when someone else is making poor, mistake, making poor decisions. All of these things, descriptions of the opposite 
of love. Resentful. I think that's one, this idea of taking into account wrongs that have been suffered. Basically keeping a list. True love doesn't have a tally card. It doesn't have something that you're keeping track of. I was reading this week about a married man who said to his friend, every time my wife gets mad, she gets historical. His friend says, historical? Don't you mean hysterical? No, I mean historical. She rehearses everything I've done wrong in the history of our marriage. Like, wait a second. That, that's not what love is supposed to look like. There's no scorecard that we're keeping track of. We see the alternative at the end there. Verse 7. Instead of these things, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, it's kind of this picture of, to some degree, what we describe in our culture as, well, I don't want to be a doormat. Well, when I read the description of love, you're like, well, to some degree, that is what we're called to be. It's the, the parent that comes along the child and says, you know what? It doesn't matter how far you wander, how far you go, how far you might uh, detour from the path that I've set you on. I'm going to remain. I'm going to bear all these things. I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to hope in you. I'm going to endure all of these things. That's a description of what true love looks like. All of these things that Jesus demonstrated to us while here on earth. I was listening to a pastor talk, and I liked because he made the choice, maybe you've heard this before, to actually insert the name of Jesus in this section of scripture. And I think it sounded beautiful. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. It's not, Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus insists, uh, does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things with us, his kids. Pretty powerful description of where the example comes from. When you're like, how is this even possible? That is the model that he's trying to nudge us towards. It's not saying we're going to arrive at perfect love, but it's still something we're, we're trying to aim towards. It's the goal. It's what we're trying to move towards with the help of the Holy Spirit in our life. Continue in the passage, verse 8, this further description of love. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Definitely aware of the fact that we're living in a world that has very temporary things. You don't have to be alive very long to see that everything is just kind of getting old and wearing out. And you're like, okay, I need to replace this. I need to do this. Uh, anybody that has a car understands this completely. You're just like, man, it's just on borrowed time before this thing completely goes out. A couple of weeks ago, I had a power steering go out of my car. and Man, that was brutal. You're just realizing that things have a shelf life on this earth. We're constantly asking the question, what will actually last? What actually has longevity? Here, Paul is getting to that. 
He's pointing as you're weeding through and assessing what actually endures, what actually lasts, he points to the idea of love. It never ends. It's the one thing that we take past this life. I like how John MacArthur points out that our only link we have with eternity is love. So love should dominate our current existence if we're being strategic, if we're being wise with what is actually permanent and what is actually passing. It's interesting because he mentions a couple of things that actually do pass and what actually remains. Mentioning things that are actually good things that he's saying pass. Again, it says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What is the perfect? What's the, the, when's the perfect come? Really, there's a, a number of different possibilities for that definition, and most camps actually fall into one or two po- of two possibilities. One, that the perfect come, when the perfect comes, that's referring to the perfect completion of God's word. Then those things would no longer be necessary. Others would argue, and I would actually lean this direction, that the perfect comes is when we are in heaven and finally to be made perfect. Finally, the conclusion has come. He's saying, and it aligns with that in verse 9 and 10, this idea that this, that now we see partially, now we get a little glimpse, but there's going to be a day and age where we're complete where we no longer need some of these things mentioned. He's saying that as far as prophecies, they'll pass away. Think about that. As far as something prophetic or a a word of wisdom that's being passed on to us, once we're complete, once our eyes have been clearly opened, that's no longer necessary. That's why he's saying that will pass away. Knowledge, the ability to understand all that's going on, a a clear understanding of all that God has revealed to us. He's like, that's no longer going to be necessary because no more teaching in heaven. We will have arrived. Think about that first possible definition. If it was the arrival of the completed word of God, that doesn't mean that this idea of knowledge passes. That knowledge passes still is necessary for communicating God's word to others, to helping them understand that. You see, the day is coming where I'm actually working myself out of a job. There's no, going to be no preachers, no teachers in heaven. I joke often with Chad and Erica, or we have joked before, that in heaven I'll be out of work, but they'll still be employed as worship leaders. But this is the idea. We're told that now we see partially, but then we're going to see completely. And he uses the illustration. What's the illustration that he uses as an example? He describes this this image of seeing like the picture of a mirror. So reading a little bit of history about Corinth. Corinth was actually known, and maybe that's the reason why he uses this illustration for making mirrors in that time. But they weren't glass mirrors. They were metal mirrors that were pounded down perfectly flat, and then smoothed out and then worked to a a shine that you could actually see your reflection. But if you've ever seen your reflection in a a metal, in something metal, you get a glimpse, but it's not a perfect reflection. That's the idea. He says, right now we get a glimpse, but what's to come is a clear, perfect picture. 
It's kind of, it's, it's not saying that what we see is false. It's not as if like, oh, we have the wrong information. It's just not complete, not inaccurate, just incomplete. At some point, when we're made perfect, when we're present with the Lord, some of those dots that haven't made sense are going to all be connected. So this is the idea. Here's the, the idea as far as this, this topic of tongues and as far as uh, the topic that we s- spoke about a couple weeks ago as far as it went with healing. As a church, we lean towards the idea of those gift, the gift of healing and tongues were for a specific reason and came to completion when the gospel message was validated and communicated in Acts. It talks about here that those will pass away, the other's knowledge and uh, prophecy will pass away, but the tongues, we're told, will cease. We actually lean toward the idea that they have ceased, or at least in the version or demonstration that we're seeing in the early church. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't still heal, and it doesn't mean that God can't still speak to somebody in an incredible or miraculous way, but the gifting or uh, attached to an individual, we do believe, has ceased. Definitely not an issue worthy of division, but just want to make sure we're clear on where the, our, our leaning is as a church under that topic. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Continue with this explanation, the final couple of verses. Verse 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So what's he talking about? He's talking about this idea of being childish. And uh, any of us that are parents understand what that's like as you're dealing with kids in different stages of life. I remember when my kiddos were little, we had to kind of appropriately gauge our expectations based on how old they are. I remember at some points we would jokingly say, hey, Sienna, stop acting like you're seven years old. She'd be like, but dad, I am seven years old. And we're like, oh yeah, that's right. And we tease her, mess with her a little bit on that. This idea of appropriate expectations based on age is true in the spiritual world as well. He's saying, listen, when when I was a child, I used to get caught up in all these childish things. But as I grew up, as I became a man, Paul's explaining, I put away those childish things. What are the childish things that he's challenging us to put away? We've already talked about them in the last couple of weeks. This idea of coveting other gifts, uh, 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 the idea of belittling your gift and getting, uh, allowing this to become a competition and getting into an unhealthy place with that. He's like, we're intended to move past that, to be, to be clinging to hope about the future and actually maturing. That's God's design. If you're not clear on that, the longer you're walking with the Lord, you're intended to be maturing, becoming more and more like Jesus in your own life. I've seen that even in my own family, seen that with my my father over the years. A lot of things that may have been a a, a big deal to him as a younger man, as he's gotten older, man, he's gotten a a little different perspective. 
He values things a little bit differently. I'm even noticing that in my own life. You see, there's a maturity that's intended to come from the years of walking with the Lord. And here's the thing. This idea is that you're supposed to, again, seeing through the, the mirror dimly, you're intended we, to understand, hey, right now, I get a little bit of a glimpse of it, but in the future, knowing and trusting and placing my hope that, man, once, once we get uh, our eyes open completely, there's going to be no regret. We're going to be like, oh, now it all comes together. Confident as we see the Lord face to face, all the folly of this world will be on full display. Here, so here's the thing to be, that we're asked to be okay with. To be okay with understanding that like, now I understand and I get it a little bit. But I understand there's also a lot more to come. So how are we supposed to operate with that knowledge? It says right there in the text that we're to keep moving forward with faith and a ton of hope. And most importantly, above all else, the one thing that's going to last is our love. Think about that. That's so often the one thing that anyone remembers about us. It's not our, our witty comments. It's not our ability to articulate somebody. It's our, not our knowledge, our work ethic. So often what people remember is, man, when you're around them, do you feel loved? As a church family, if there's anything that we could be known for, that I would love to be known for, is, is not any of these peripheral things, but to be known and remembered for our love. Because what love is, is a reflection of Jesus inside of us. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this chapter on love that brings us back to your design. We've wandered as a culture so far from it and sold short all the things that we claim we love, all the, the things that are petty, things that are silly. I just pray that this might even be something that moves us back to your big or top two. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the idea that we're seeing demonstrated here by Paul, trying to bring this young church back to the basics, back to the foundation. The one thing that's eternal in all of this is our love. We thank you so much for this time in your word. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.